Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Welcome to the Daily Jungle. What's going on? Conor McGregor back in the news for glossing himself the champ champ, for Dana White ripping his belt, and for going on the gram and saying, I am fighting again, period. That's a quote. The FBI has dropped another bomb on college basketball as Yahoo reports that at least 20 programs and more than 25 players could be tied up to an underground recruiting operation. And the Olympic athletes from Russia got busted for another juicer. This one is a women's bobsled captain who rocked a sweatshirt that actually said, I don't do doping. And she wasn't the only one. Plus, three excellent guests. We had Super Bowl champ Jason Kelsey, the lightweight champion of the world Ray Beltron, and SB Nation's Paul Flannery. Adam Hawk served a suspension for yesterday's Larry Holmes disaster, and Alvy closed the week down with an epic week that was the Daily Jungle. Starts right now. It has been a minute or so since Conor McGregor made news. Earlier this week, though, Dana White told TMZ that the winner of the Ferguson-Khabib fight at UFC 223 on April 7th would get Conor's belt. Dana said, quote, I said in the last press conference, that fight will be for the title. It's not for the interim title. That fight will be for the title. End quote. He went on to say, quote, is he upset? No, Connor understands. Connor made a lot of money. He wants some time off, but the division has to go on and the business has to go on. End quote. He then went on to say once again that Connor may never fight again. It was August and now it's September. I say it all the time. When you get that kind of money, Connor might never come back. It's a lot of money. End quote. Well, Connor finally got around to doing something. Connor hopped on Instagram with a pic of himself wearing a gigantic turtleneck and a message which reads, quote, I am fighting again, period. I am the best at this. I put my name forward to step in at UFC 222 to face Frankie Edgar when Max Holloway pulled out, but I was told there wasn't enough time to generate the money that the UFC would need. I was excited about bouncing in last minute and taking out the final featherweight without all the rest of the stuff that comes with this game. Please respect the insane amount of work outside the fight game that I have put in on top of the fighting. I am here. It is on them to come and get me because I am here. Yours sincerely, the champ champ. End quote. So obviously, you know this guy means business. You know he means business when he's signing it, the champ champ, because to quote him, the double champ does what the bleep he wants. The double champ does what the he wants. End quote. And according to the double champ, the double champ does want to fight again. Not only that, but he says that he stepped forward and was willing to fight Frankie Edgar at UFC 222 next week in Las Vegas. But he was rejected because the UFC did not have the time to generate the money and the hype to make it worthwhile. However, Frankie Edgar's manager is not buying this. Check out this fire. He told TMZ that Connor is, quote, like a prostitute. Used to make high-dollar money, but she got old and nobody wanted her anymore. This bleeping guy. For three years, he did everything he can not to fight Frankie Edgar. End quote. And if that bomb weren't enough, he also added, quote, 
I don't care if Frankie is 50 years old. Frankie could be 50 years old and beat the bleep out of him and the whole entire nation of Ireland. He'd beat everyone in Ireland hands down. He can't beat Frankie. He can't wait. Or he can wait until Frankie's 60. Frankie would still beat his ass. End quote. Boom! Fire. Calling the guy an old prostitute and a coward and saying that Frankie could beat the bleep out of not just him, but the entire nation of Ireland at 50, that is the definition of straight fire. They aren't fighting, but those are officially fighting words. Listen, I don't know what Connor did or did not say, what he did or did not do when it comes to UFC 222. Dana White has made the point numerous times in the past that Connor was always the guy that would fight anyone, anywhere, anytime, at any weight, on any amount of notice. So it would not surprise me if you were willing to take that fight on short notice. Nor would it surprise me if you want to be the guy coming in with the element of surprise. And he even admitted this. I can definitely see Connor wanting to jump in at the very last minute to avoid having to do all the media which he has come to hate, which he's great at, but which he has come to hate. I can see all that. Just as I could see the UFC would not want to put Connor, hey, Hawk, just walk down the street. You're not welcome here anymore. Hawk's just sitting around like, hey, can I sit down again, boss? Am I out of, am I out of punishment yet? Beat it, Hawk. Beat it, Hawk. I'm trying to do a Conor, a Conor McGregor take here. Hawk. Next time, know who the former heavyweight champion was. Anyway, I could see. Anyway, anyway let's play some basketball. Let's play some basketball. Anyway, what's popping Twitter? Today's Friday. Today is Friday. Tomorrow is Saturday. Yesterday was Thursday. Hey, New York, can you show a, a shot of Hawk's chair to show that he's no longer in that chair and still not in that chair? There it is. Empty chair. Find us on CBS Sports Network. I could see where Connor would want to come in last minute. I could see where Connor, you know, to be that guy. I could see where Connor would want to come in last minute to get out of doing all the media. But I could see where Dana White would not want to put Connor in a fight without the buildup that would sell the tickets and garner the pay-per-view buys. And I could see where Dana could spell out the fact that UFC 223 was for Connor's belt. And I could see where Dana would say that publicly, maybe to get Connor to come out and fight once again. So here's why I started with this. And here's my takeaway from all of this. This is not about Connor fighting at UFC 222. This is not about other guys fighting for Connor's belt at UFC 223. This is about if and when Connor McGregor is going to fight again. He's got millions and millions of reasons to never step in a cage again. And I've been starting to think that that's probably the case. That the only way this guy would step in the cage or a ring is if there were a briefcase with 100 mil sitting right in front of him. Except now he's saying he does want to fight again. He's not hinting at it. He's coming right out and saying it. Maybe it's all posturing. But if the champ champ says he's fighting again... That's the closest I've come to believing that he actually will fight again. And going off that post, it makes it sound like it's a matter of where and when. I hope so. I really hope so. Because he is still the most compelling guy in the game. 
Sure, I've got an amazing threshold for Connor getting punched in the face and choked out, especially given the stacks and stacks that he now has in the bank. Stacks that he deserves, stacks that he has earned, but if you want to be the champ champ, it's time to fight, fight, Connor. Let's do this. Time to get back to work, champ champ. Time to get back to work. Let's see it. Do you think the guy wants to fight? Do you think that he wants to fight Frankie Edgar? Or do you think, like Dana White has said over and over again, the guy's got so much money in the bank. Why would he go out there and have to earn a living by getting punched in the face repeatedly and risk getting choked out again when he's got stacks and stacks and stacks in the bank? Jason Kelsey is our guest. Jason, great to have you on. How are you? Oh, doing great. Thanks for having me. Jason, thanks for doing it. I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody enjoy a Super Bowl win as much as you enjoyed that one. How does it feel a few weeks out to be a Super Bowl champion? Does it feel the way you thought that it would? Um, you know, I don't know that I expected it to feel any certain way, but it's been outstanding. I mean, this this city's been, you know, searching for this, uh, for this win for a long time, and the fact that it's finally uh, arrived, I think, rubbed off on, on all of us players. You can feel the emotion in the city. Uh, the energy that everyone lost the game since the Super Bowl victory happened. I mean, there's a lot of excitement in Philadelphia, and it's all uh, a lot of it comes towards us, and it's, it's just been a lot of fun. I'm glad you mentioned the city. Let me ask you about Philadelphia, because it can be such a tough place to play. It's not necessarily yeah. for everybody, but it's pretty clear. You love Philly. Philly loves you. How would you describe the relationship with the city and its fans? I mean, these fans are diehards. I mean, there's you're not going to find another uh, city where the sports teams are more relevant on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you can feel the city with a win on Sunday. You can feel the city with a loss. And, uh, you know, this it's been an incredible honor to play for Philadelphia and the Eagles organization for just finished up my seventh season. Um, and like you said, I mean, they're going to, just like I do as a person, I feel like, you know, the, the city really wears their emotions on their sleeves. They're going to let you know when you're living up to the standard of, uh, what they deem is uh, uh, it, what it should be playing for for the Philadelphia Eagles, and also going to let you know, uh, you know, when you're doing it well. And it's at all times um, you feel the love and you feel the excitement around the city. And um, I couldn't have asked to be in a better spot. Clones, I'd like a minute if I could, so I can talk to you about Stamps.com. It goes without saying that the U.S. Postal Service is an important tool for any business reaching every household every single day. Now, Stamps.com is the easiest way to access all the amazing services of the post office. Stamps.com never closes. You can print postage for letters or packages at your convenience 24-7. You can print postage for any mail class right from your own computer. With the exact amount of postage every single time, so you never underpay or overpay. And Stamps.com saves you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. I love Stamps.com, and the reason I use Stamps.com is because it is convenient, it is easy, it is reliable, it is so efficient, it saves me so much time. I love this product. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. So go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Jungle. To get this deal, go to Stamps.com and enter the code name Jungle. I love this product. I know you will, too.
That's stamps.com. Now it's back to our daily jungle. Jason Kelsey joining us. You know, it's pretty clear you wear it on your sleeve. They wear it on their sleeve. But this was never more evident than during that absolutely epic speech at the parade. As you look back, Jason, on that speech, what kind of thoughts do you have? Um, I mean, I think that that had been stuff that had been building up for a long time. Uh, you know, I think as every athlete goes through adversity, uh, you know, you, you start to store things. You start to try and uh, um, you remember things. And I think that going across the board, um, you know, not just through myself, but you saw adversity that every single guy had gone through. You saw adversity that, um, you know, from the top down, from the management to the coaches to the players, everybody had been through something that seemed like uh, as I look back on the season, uh, whether it was that season or years prior. And uh, as I kind of looked at that, you kind of saw the correlation uh, to Philadelphia and how much adversity the city's been through, how uh, how the struggle it's been for the fan base in trying to get to this moment. And um, I think that that's really what resonated well, and it was something that had been between my own emotions of building up and having to do that uh, in the cities and everybody else's. I think that it just kind of culminated into that moment and uh, it made for a, a pretty good speech, I'd say. Yeah, I'd say the best speech ever. It was an amazing speech. <laughs> Credit to you. You know, when you talk about the emotion that builds up, Jason, it seems to me that if you've got somebody, you know, somebody proud like you who's got a chip on your shoulder and then you get a locker room full of guys like that and then you get a city full of people like that, it can be a really powerful thing. But if you keep it right there in the locker room, I'm not there so I can't say, but from the outside looking in, it seems like there's an amazing bond and there's such tremendous love among all the players. How powerful is that bond? and then how does that translate on the field? Yeah, I mean, this year has been by far the biggest bond that I've seen. I mean, it's it seems like everybody's had each other's backs. Everybody's been in it from the beginning. I mean, you saw just the, with, the, with the way practices went, with the, uh, the way everybody uh, was doing extra, the way everybody was buying into the system, buying into the team. We had, I mean, we have, you know, like pretty much a running back by committee where, you know, you have Garrett Blunt, who's, pretty much been a featured back his entire career. And all of a sudden he's not getting quite as many carries, but he was happy to do that for the betterment of the team. And, uh, you know, I think that that's rare to find at the NFL level uh, because you have so many guys and rightfully so are concerned uh, about their careers and concerned about money and things like that. And uh, for whatever reason this year, um, you know, I think that we just had the right guys, the right locker room, the the, the right environment that facilitated everybody really working with each other extremely well. Eagle Center, Jason Kelsey joining us. You know, when you look at your resume, it's easy to forget. I mean, you're a first-team All-Pro. You're a Pro Bowler right now. It's easy to forget, and there are those who some don't even know, that when you were 18, you were not given a scholarship to play at any Division I program. So that was a challenging time right there. Your grandfather at that time gave you a quote from Calvin Coolidge about persistence. What was it about that quote that stuck with you and resonated with you? Well, it was so at that point, and that's actually funny to bring this up because there's another speech that I made right after the game that was much more uh, even as emotional, but in a different way. Um, but the that quote resonated so much with me because at that time I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I should go play Division three football, if I should play a different sport, if I wanted to even keep playing sports. And um, it was a really turning point in my life um, where I had to make a decision on what I was going to do. And luckily I had my grandfather there that gave me that quote and my parents who really pushed me uh, to to keep going with my dreams. I didn't, you know, this thing isn't over until, you know, it, until you pretty much give up on it. And, um, you know, that quote pretty much specifies, you know, if, you know, 
to, to I guess I'll just say if, if I have enough time. But sure, sure. Uh, you know, nothing nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not unrewarded, or nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not unrewarded. Genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. Uh, nothing or the world is full of educated derelicts. So basically, you know, all these you can be as smart as you want, you can be as talented as you want, you can have all the gifts in the world handed to you. Um, but at the end of the day, if you don't have the persistence, the, the determination, the perseverance to continue to push through adversity and to push through struggles and to and to overcome obstacles, uh, none of those things will amount to anything. And it was something that kind of struck me right in the forehead at a time when I needed it most. Jason Kelsey joining us. I mean, it was the thing you need to hear at that time when you needed it most, like you just said. I mean, was that a tough time, or was there a, a real possibility that you could have walked away from the game entirely, and this would have never happened? Did you ever come close to quitting? Yeah, I mean, that, I think that there was there was a real uh, there was a real thought in my head um, at that point as a young kid. Um, you know, I was a very competitive kid. I was very confident in my abilities, but uh, you know. I, when you get told no by all these colleges, when you've gone to all these visits and you've gone to all these camps and everybody pretty much says, you know, you're not good enough, you start to wonder, you know, am I good enough? You know, especially as a kid who, you know, all these adults are pretty much telling you, you know, we don't think we don't value you at this level. And um, it's, 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 it's a, it was a crushing feeling for me because I had a different feeling of myself. And, uh, and I still remember, you know, talking to my parents and asking them, you know, what should I do? Should I, Division One schools are a lot of money um, to to walk on. I can go to a Division Two school and get some scholarship money, and go to a, you know, one AA school, get some money here. Um, and my parents really, really told me to, you know, pursue my dreams. We'll find a way to pay for college. We'll find a way uh, to get student loans. We'll find a way to get that done. And if it wasn't for their support, uh, for that quote that my grandfather gave me, I don't know that I would have kept going. And, um, you know, I think that lucky for me, I had those support systems in place that um, that kept me going. And, uh, you know, once I was on from then on out, I think it's it's really shaped me uh, the rest of the way. You hear that story and you can see where the emotion does come out in a moment like that. And what a powerful story that is. You walk on as a linebacker with the University of Cincinnati and you keep working, you keep grinding. And now you're a Super Bowl champion, all pro. I mentioned, though, Jason, off the very top, you were a Cleveland Heights Tiger. Not only that, yeah. you were a member of the jazz band and the symphonic <laughs> winds ensemble. And you picked up the baritone sax once again. And you sat in with the band again this week when they came through Philly. How was the experience? And did you pick up right where you left off? Experience was awesome. Um, I, I was excited to just be with the kids, uh, not just from uh, Cleveland Heights, but also from Central and uh, High School in Philadelphia. Uh, my former band director and jazz uh, band leader, Brett Baker, is still at the same high school I was at, so I was able to reconnect with him. And um, they actually pulled out the exact same baritone saxophone that I played when I was in school, which was so cool. Um, and uh, I did not, unfortunately, though, pick up where I left off. I am. Uh, Twelve years of uh, not practicing and uh, and not playing saxophone has left me uh, uh, severely uh, diminished in skill compared to where I was at in high school. Uh, but it was nonetheless a lot of fun, and it was it was really cool to interact with those kids. And you know, I think that you know the arts and things, you know, they don't get enough credit. And 
uh, and how much they can shape people. And it was just a blessing to be able to be there. That's fun. Jason Kelsey, my guest. So last thought, you were the star of that Super Bowl parade in your Mummers costume. The Mummers parade is this weekend. So is it true that you're not only marching in the parade, but you're a full-blown dues-paying member of the Avalon Group? And if so, how did that come to be? And then how much are you looking forward to that? The the rumor is true. Yeah, okay. The rumor, I'm a, a fully on board uh, with the Avalon String Band. Um, dues-paying member. Uh, basically, it started with me trying to find a I was sitting there talking to my fiance, and I was like, you know, I think it'd be cool to wear a mummer's costume for the parade. And she actually reminded me that my uh, that my hairdresser, uh, Libby, is uh, her husband is a big-time mummer. And he uh, basically, like, we called Libby. She got in contact with Bobby to try and get a suit uh, available. And uh, we ended up being with the Avalon String Band. So now I'm a full-time Avalon String Band member. I'll be out there this Sunday with the group, and uh, I'm looking forward to it. Remember, last time he called, he called himself a made man. So I just don't think that when he looks in the mirror, he sees what you see when you all look at him. But there is one way to find out. Let's go to San Antonio. Jeff, good morning. Jeff, what's going on? How are you? Man, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm cry it i don't know what to do except cry it, it's who i am and i just don't know i'm fine Rome. i'm totally fine you hit the nail right on the head i'm not anything that people view me as i am definitely a badass i've got a kid so i mean that's proof that i am a badass right there and the funniest email that you got the last time that i called was the guy that asked if i cried during the conception and of course i did why wouldn't i but to be honest with you, the show just means a lot to me, man. I've been listening for way too long for it not to have been an impact on my life. And the fact that Hawk didn't know who Larry Holmes was should contribute more to this problem we have of where we are in sports and society. Like, what's up with that, dude? Like, how can you not know who Larry Holmes is? Like, watch Coming to America. Watch something from the 80s and figure out that, you know, time and Everything existed before Hawk entered the world, but whatever. Um, you know, things are great as far as fatherhood. You know, Jordan is rocking and rolling. She's keeping us up just enough for us to stay on our toes. Me and the fiance are going to be husband and wife soon enough. I'm going back to work on Monday. Things are great, man. Um, can't complain. Would be stupid if I tried. But on more of a little bit more relevant topic, you know, this Kawhi Leonard thing is a major deal for this cow town down here in San Antonio. Um, it, it could be the trajectory of a franchise. You know, it's obvious that there's something up with that dude's head. Um, if you know anything about him, which is hard to do, you know, he doesn't really come out and then speak publicly, but the insights that I do have, you know, he's, he's a basketball machine. You know, he eats, lives, breathes, sleeps basketball, but his loyalty to his family, like specifically his mother, is probably one of the strongest that any pro athlete has ever demonstrated. And honestly, Jim, it would not surprise me at all with the way that Pop runs his players and kind of, you know, is a father. Speaking of running players. You don't like that call. I don't like that call. Jeff. Not a very good call. I waited as long as I could through that phone call for you to start crying. And you didn't, so inevitably I had to run you when you started to talk about the trajectory of the franchise and your insight into Kawhi. You're right. How, how do you have insight into Kawhi? Kawhi won't let any of us in. My man, that, that was amazing. That, that call, there were so many takes within the call. I could break that down myself, but I would rather you clones do it for me. 
Why do I have to do everything? What was your reaction to what you just heard from Jeff in San Antonio? <laughs> I loved it when he said the funniest email from my last call was when somebody asked if I started crying during conception. And the answer is yes. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> I am definitely a badass. Well, that was my second favorite part of the program, uh, call when I said, there's something about this guy. I don't think that he sees himself. When he looks in the mirror, he does not see himself the way you all see him. He said, 100% correct, Rome. I am a badass. I am definitely a badass. Now, check that. Not I am a badass. I am definitely a badass. If I didn't run him, he'd still be going right now. He would take me right through the top of the hour into hour number two into Jason Kelsey at 20 past. This email says, yes, Rome, make sure you make Hawk brush up on what Larry Holmes is famous for. His role in coming to America. What the hell? Watch Frank coming to America. Watch something from the 80s and figure out that, you know. I think that he was not reaching for watch that movie because Larry starred in that movie. He was reaching for something from the 80s like Larry was big in the 80s. But then again, don't ask me to explain Jeff in San Antonio. I waited as long as I could to see if the, uh, the water well was going to start to flow, but it didn't. Paul Flannery is my guest. Paul, it's great to have you back. How are you? Hey, Tim, doing well. How are you doing? Doing great, Paul. Nice to visit with you. Let me start with the All-Star Weekend, if you don't mind. It was about a lot of things. I want to jump right into it. A lot of it seemed to revolve around LeBron James. And during that weekend, you had a conversation with Michelle Roberts, who is the executive director of the NBA Players Association. Paul, how would she describe the impact that LeBron has on his peers? I think LeBron is such a giant figure in the league, Jim, that, you know, and you got to remember, too, most of these guys are younger than him now. I mean, his contemporaries are basically Chris Paul, Carmelo. The older generation has started to, you know, retire and move along. He's still at the top of his game. So these young guys, especially the young guys that are coming in 19, 20 years old, they've grown up with the idea of LeBron James as this larger-than-life figure. And when they see him, frankly, handling um, social issues or whatever issues are, 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 the, are the topic of the day and handling them the way he does – I think that, that creates a tremendous trickle-down effect to the rest of the players. I think it empowers them. I think it gives them voice, and I think that they really look up to him. Paul Flannery joining us. What about his role? How does he see himself not just as a player but as the very guy that you're talking about, a leader in the league and in society? I think this is something that has evolved over the years. I mean, you see, we've all seen him since he was a teenager. And it wasn't until he started winning championships and he started feeling more comfortable with who he is and what he was doing and he didn't feel like he had to prove over and over and over again to the same people. And he started to become comfortable with himself. And I think that's when he started to assert himself and his personality over the league and also, you know, take a lead in some of these, in some of these issues that, that, that people are talking about and have a voice and use his voice in the manner he sees fit. He doesn't comment on everything now. He does, he does step away from a few things. But I think that he has, you know, he has proven himself to be a leading, outspoken advocate of the things he believes in. We're talking to Paul Flannery, SB Nation, also teaches journalism at Boston University. So from a basketball standpoint, Paul, when you look at LeBron and you see the Cavaliers right now, how different do they feel after the trade deadline than prior to it? Night and day. Night and day. They actually came through Boston right after they made the trades, and I was talking to some people you know, connected with the team who work with the team, and they said, you know, look, it was – it, that the, the team they had before the deadline was going nowhere, and there was a dark cloud hanging over. And just making the trades themselves 
kind of lifted that cloud. But the guys they got, Jim, I like them a lot. I like George Hill a lot for them. I think Rodney Hood will be good for them. Clarkson, Larry Nance provides something they didn't have before. So they swapped out guys that weren't working and brought in four guys who can really help them. I thought immediately the second they made those trades, they were back in the driver's seat as far as being the, the top team in the East in the playoffs. And, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, we have a lot to, we have a long way to go. These guys have to fit in, but I think that they are, they are once again back where we thought they were going to be. We're talking to Paul Flannery. Paul, what about Toronto? They're on top of the East right now, and we've seen them in the past, and we've thought that they were ready and about to take the next step, and then they just haven't in the postseason. Do they look any different or feel any different to you this year than they have in years past? They look a lot different, and they feel a lot different. But at the same time, Jim, I mean, you said it, every time we get into the playoffs, they don't play up to their best. And this is going back three, four years with the same core guys. So I want to, they got to prove it. They got to prove it to me. They've changed up their style a little bit. They've got some young guys who are really contributing off the bench. Um, I, I love the way they're playing. If you were to ask me who the best team in the Eastern Conference is today, it's Toronto. But if you're going to ask me who I think is going to be the best in May, I just don't think they can beat LeBron until I see it. We're talking to Paul Flannery. Paul, one of the really mysterious stories over the course of the year has been Kawhi Leonard and the situation with San Antonio. I mean, do you have any sense as to what's going on there and how that might play out? They are such a closed society that it's difficult to get any kind of information out of there. I mean, from, from what it appears to be, you know, the doctors have cleared him. He doesn't feel comfortable, and they have given him, you know, the decision-making power here. And I think that's smart in the long run. You have a player like Kawhi Leonard who is a franchise player, and if you rush him out, if you put him out there ahead of where he thinks he is, that can do a lot of damage. We saw, I mean, Indiana did this with Paul George. Remember when he came back from the, from the leg injury, the gruesome leg injury? And they kind of pushed him to get back out there in time for the end of the season and the postseason, and it really caused some damage in terms of their relationship. So I think the Spurs are being smart with it. It is mysterious. It is strange. Anyone who's ever dealt with leg injuries of any kind, I'm a runner, I've dealt with these all my life, quad injuries, they're not always as, as simple as rest and rehab. That Sometimes they linger a lot longer than you think. Yeah, there's something there. I'm not exactly sure what it is because, as you point out, they are a closed society, but it seems like there's something there, and I'm not exactly sure what it is, but that seems very unspurs-like and either un like as well. Now, you did a piece on Boston Celtic Jalen Brown, who, for my money, is not only one of the best young players in the league, but also one of the most interesting. The two of you talked about his practice of meditation. How did he first get involved with that? Yeah, this was really interesting, and thanks for bringing that up. Um, so he got into it when he was about 16. And when he started, as he says, getting status as a, as, a, as a prospect and having to deal with this reality that was suddenly thrust upon him where all these people were coming after him and, you know, God, what, I, I might make the NBA. What, what's going to happen here? And he needed to kind of get control of himself and his thoughts and his emotions. He's a really smart guy. There's a lot going on up there. So he started developing some ideas in terms of meditation and visualization and calming his mind and things like that. And it's something he stuck with. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really an interesting thing. In the course of doing that piece, I started my own, and I found it to be very, very helpful. And, you know, I think there's a lot of guys in the league right now who are into this kind of thing. And there's a lot of people in the world who are kind of into this kind of thing. And when I started covering the league, Jim, in like the late 90s, nobody talked about this. If you talked about your, anything going on in your brain, it was considered a sign of weakness. And now I think it's considered a sign of strength, and I think that's a good thing. See, I was going to say, mental health and wellness is something that can be really tricky for athletes, even taboo, because as you point out, Paul, there's this unspoken belief that if you talk about the challenges that you're facing in that area, then you're weak. What's it say about him that he's talking about it and talking about it at such a young age? Yeah, I think it's great. And, I mean, I, you know, for him, and he, he even said this to me, he said, you know, if we can just help change 
perceptions just a little bit with this story, then that's a good thing. And, you know, I mean, when, when, don't, get it, don't get it twisted now. Jalen Brown is one of the most confident young people that I've ever been around in this league. And that confidence translates into a lot of different ways. What it really is, it's letting go of a fear of failure. And, you know, players will never admit to having a fear, fear of failure on any stretch. But the back of their minds, they're going, man, I can't beat this guy. I can't cover this guy. I can't make this shot. And, you know, it's, it's difficult to put yourself into that position. He's managed to do it, and, you know, he's not a star yet. I, I don't know if he ever will be, but he has, he has allowed himself the room to grow and develop into a really good young player with a, with a bright future. We're talking to Paul Flannery. He's an NBA senior writer for SB Nation. Now, during the All-Star weekend, you also had a chance to experiment with virtual reality with Anthony Davis and Bradley Beal. It's fascinating to me. Can you break this down? First off, what are you like with technology? Are you a big tech guy, or is that not generally where you live and what you do? Not even a little bit. The less tech, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. All right. So what equipment were you wearing, and then how did that equipment feel? Right. So they, they let me try on this little headset thing, and it felt a little cumbersome. But what was really weird was that it was, I was using my eyes, but it wasn't my eyes. It was a camera. And it was instantaneous. It, was, it didn't feel like you were in like a video game or anything like that. It felt like you were in real life. Your depth perception is a little bit messed up at first, but once you adjust to it, I mean, Bradley took a couple of free throws. He was throwing up air balls, but then once he got the once he got the rhythm of it, he was like swish, swish, swish. And you know, I thought this was going to be kind of a fun little lark. What it what stood out to me about this gym is really the league is and all leagues are going to have to figure out what they're going to do in a post you know cable television world where they're not getting these giant rights fees from these from these television uh, cable companies. And, you know, virtual reality is something that you could potentially now sell and market to your fans. Don't just watch the game. View it through the player's eyes. It's really something. I don't know how close we are to this. I think it's, you know, years away. But I don't think it's that far away either. Yeah, I was going to say, so then how does the league use it? And to that point, how close is it? And how big could it be? It could be huge. I mean, I, I think we're a couple years away for sure. And, you know, that. The networks are just starting to roll out the 5G. And as I said before, I, my technology is very, very limited. So this is right on the cutting edge of where, where this is going. And, you know, I mean, look, players can't play with these things on, right? Bradley Beal was like, you know, I felt like I was RoboCop. <laughs> That's right. not going to work. But if they're able to, to refine the technology to the point where it becomes very minimal and, you know, it's, it's unobtrusive, I mean, you know, think about the things that we thought 10 years ago were impossible and now we just take for granted – so I think this is something to really keep an eye on because the NBA is constricted by one thing. They have arenas that seat 20,000 people, but it's a global game with billions of people who are invested in watching it, and they're trying to tap into that. Well, there's no doubt. I think it's going to be like the biggest thing in the world. Paul Flannery joining us. One last thought. You mentioned you've covered that league since the 90s. Paul, you've been around a long time. I literally have done this show in some format since the very late 80s. You're teaching journalism at Boston University. The kids that come in, I would never ask you to say, hey, generally, what are these kids thinking and feeling? But in terms of journalism, are kids coming in, and how do they see the world now as compared to like when you and I broke in and how we saw it? It's changed so dramatically. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, they see it very differently, of course, but... You know, I think, I think the kids don't change that much. And that they, The ones that want to learn, learn. And they want to learn how to do it the right way. It's unfortunate in some instances. I mean, I grew up, and when I got out of school, I did 10 years at newspapers and really learned, you know, I learned the nuts and bolts to the point where I can do a deadline piece within five minutes and I'll never lose that. That doesn't really exist for these, for these kids anymore. And the reporting opportunities are few and far between. They're asked to, you know, come up with takes at the age of 22 
And, you know, as you know, that's, that, that's easier said than done. Sure. So I think they want to learn. They want to go about it the right way. And, you know, it's, uh, there's different opportunities for them, and that's a challenge as trying to teach them because I can't teach them what I used to learn in the late 90s. It doesn't, doesn't even exist anymore. So let's talk about the NCAA. Let's talk college basketball. Remember before the season when four assistant coaches and six other individuals were arrested in that FBI investigation into corruption in the sport? Well, that story is still going. Going. That's not the end of that. It's still going, and it's picking up more and more names. Yahoo's Pete Thamel and Pat Forty dropped a report this morning that they describe as showing, quote, an underground recruiting operation, end quote, that could create problems for a number of programs. Notice I didn't say a couple of programs or a few programs, but a number of programs. And that number according to Yahoo, is, quote, at least 20 Division I basketball programs and more than 25 players, end quote. Uh-oh! At least 20 Division I programs. So we're not talking about a few bad apples or maybe a renegade program or a rogue operation. 20 programs, especially when the report says there are, quote, potential impermissible benefits and preferential treatment for players and families of players at Duke, North Carolina, Texas, Kentucky, Michigan State, USC, Alabama, and a host of other schools, end quote. Notice what I just said. Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky, Michigan State. That blood does not get any bluer than that. Programs with Hall of Fame coaches, legendary reputations. Three of those teams are currently in the top 10 right now. The documents and bank records surfaced in the discovery as part of a federal investigation into a former NBA agent, Andy Miller, and an associate and his company, ASM Sports. The documents, and check this, the documents break down the ways that the agency attempted to recruit potential clients and literally include balance sheets with a section header titled Loans to Players. It's right there in the paperwork. Loans to Players and a list of players and they announced that they, what they were allegedly loaned. These names include Dennis Smith, $43,500. Diamond Stone, $14,303. Markel Fultz, ten grand, and more. Then there are expense reports, which include lists of meals and meetings with players while they were still in college or even high school. I mean, when you get right down to it, the issue is not the fact that these are violations of NCAA rules, but that it's also normal. It's so standardized that they're being included in balance sheets and expense reports. They're not even trying to hide it. Loans to players. It's right there. But have no fear. NCAA president Mark Emmert is here. He's on the case. He released a statement this morning which read, quote, These allegations, if true, 
points to systematic failures that must be fixed and fixed now if we want college sports in America. Simply put, people who engage in this kind of behavior have no place in college sports. They are an affront to all those who play by the rules. Following the Southern District of New York's indictments last year, the NCAA Board of Governors and I formed the Independent Commission on College Basketball, chaired by Condoleezza Rice, to provide recommendations on how to clean up the sport. With these latest allegations, it's clear this work is more important now than ever. The board and I are completely committed to making transformational changes to the game and ensuring all involved in college basketball we do so with integrity. He went on, quote, We also will continue to cooperate with the efforts of federal prosecutors to identify and punish the unscrupulous parties seeking to exploit the system through criminal acts. End of quote. My man, that horse left that barn years ago, and you're still trying to close the door. Systematic failures. How many scandals and how many different programs do you need before you recognize that your system is a disaster and that there is not a commission that exists that can clean this up? Clean up the system. This is the system. When there's not a fair market, a black market will always emerge. College sports generate billions of dollars. The athletes receive little or no share of that. So somebody or something will always step in to fill that void and find a way to compensate those who are not receiving their compensation. That's capitalism. And it seems like the only people who do not know that or are ignorant of that are the NCAA. The only ones who are still holding on to this notion of amateurism so tightly are the NCAA. Because for everybody else, it is so business as usual that these things that the NCAA claims are systematic failures are literally written into spreadsheets. It doesn't get any more system than a balance sheet with the heading loans to players and filing expense reports for meals with athletes. There's your system. It's not a systematic failure. It is the system. So this is not an agent problem or a player problem or a player's family problem. It is an NCAA problem. The system needs to be changed. But if it's up to the NCAA to change it, don't count on any useful change anytime soon. In the meantime, we now wait because there's more where that came from. And it does include the bluest of the blue bloods. But if you're waiting for the NCAA to fix it, you'll probably be waiting a long time. We are joined by Ray Beltron. Ray, it's nice to have you back on. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you doing? How are you guys been? Great, Ray. I'm doing so great. In fact, let me start with that championship. That was your fourth title fight. And in the buildup, Ray, you were calling it do or die. So what did you mean by that? And what kind of motivation did that give you? Well, you know, do or die is like, this is it. You know, um, I'm not not a young guy, you know, that is going to have another, a lot of more chances, more opportunities, you know what I mean? So I knew, like, 
I have to win this title, or I think that's it, you know. But uh, I was positive, you know. I always believed that I was going to be okay, so, you know. So, with confidence. Ray Beltran joining us. Ray, it was a tough fight. You knew it was going to be a tough fight. There was a lot of action in that fight. It was close for the first half. You led by one point on all three cards after the first seven rounds, but then you pulled away in the second half. What did that say about your ability and your toughness that you were able to close out that fight the way you did? Well, you know, I think we were in great shape, and we felt like the fight uh, was close, and we had to step it up. And I knew, I mean, I, I made that mistake to let him, to let him, uh, uh, go go um, be ahead of the of the scorecards, but you know every time I I uh, I was I you know I take I had to take the pace I was controlling you know but so I made that mistake in the fight and, and I realized you know in the later rounds. Yeah, Ray, for a minute, can I discuss what goes into something like that? I mean, your mindset coming into the fight was, and you said this, I'm bringing 18 years of experience into the ring with me and my blood and my sweat of 42 fights that I fought to get me to this place. No man will deny me or my dreams, end quote. So what's it like when you take all that experience, all the workouts, all the training, and honestly, all the pain with you into the ring and you come out with that belt? What's that like? You know what? Um, well, not only that, but um, um, the... Also, the my biggest motivation, my kids. You know, I knew my kids were there. Um, but was thinking about the, you know, the future of my family and all that. You know, what I mean, those doesn't like, like give me the the courage. You know, the the uh, motivate me to fight harder the, the second half of the fight. So, and you know, once we win the bell, it's like, you know, it's a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings. You know, at the same time, uh, especially my my situation, that. Uh, I mean, it's, it's hard. My, I mean, I'm in a, in a, in a position where I, where I don't supposed to be, you know. And uh, it just, you know, it's just a great feeling. You know, it's a, I was happy. I was when I cry, when you know, I just scream, you know. So many things at the same time, you know, and think thought about my family. It's like in a few minutes, you know, everything I've been through, you know, where, where I went through my mind, you know. You know, Ray, when you say everything you've been through, it would take me about a half hour to kind of describe what you've been through, but you and I could talk about some of this, and we did when you came on last year, but it's not just about winning a belt. Like, when you were on the show last year, we talked about some of these things, but it's so much bigger than that. You grew up in Mexico, and you were in a home without running water or electricity. Mark Kriegel did this amazing piece on you, and it included details like the fact that you and your family would go to farms and collect the shards of potatoes and onions that were discarded so you could find a way to figure out how to make a meal. So what was life like for you growing up? Well, you know what? Um, I hear a lot of people that, you know, sometimes people talk about when you go and visit the, some countries, they're poor, you know. They see the people and say, man, you know, they don't really have much. They're happy. I mean, they just see the people for like a few days, you know, for for a moment. But it doesn't mean they're happy. I mean, they they may they 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 set their mind, you know, to deal with it, you know, no matter what. But it doesn't mean they're happy. And I remember, like, being in that situation, I wasn't. I mean, I mean, it's not. I don't think give you a happiness living without hope and without a, a you know, not, not knowing what's gonna happen next. You know, with with not having like. Know what? We're not knowing what what's gonna happen tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like you're gonna see better opportunities. You know, for your family. I mean, it's, I don't think it's fun. I don't think you'd be happy to see your loved ones. You know, 
struggling. That's not happiness, you know what I mean? So anybody that says that is people that, that they don't, I mean, they don't really, uh, they don't live that, that level, you know what I mean? They see people smiling, they don't, they, it doesn't mean they're happy. So I don't, I remember being happy at that time, you know what I mean? I mean, I mean, I deal with it. I was kind of happy, but I wasn't completely happy, you know, was being hungry doesn't give you happiness, you know, being in, in need, you know, and, and used for the basic stuff, you know, doesn't bring you happiness, you know. Rain, not knowing where your next meal is coming from, not only does that not bring happiness, that's terrifying. Not knowing what the next day looks like or feels like is really, really scary. So you come to the United States, and then at a certain point you start to box, and eventually you become a sparring partner with Manny Pacquiao. In fact, it is believed that nobody has gone more rounds with Manny than you. How much pride do you take in that fact? Well, you know what? I'm so proud of it. You know, to me, it's also one of my my dreams come my dreams come true because when I was a kid, I used to look up to the you know Ray Leonard, Luis Chavez, and they were superstars. You know, and I was wonder how how could that be to meet uh, one of the one of those legends? You know what I mean? And 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 that put me in the way of of, of um, um, uh, Manny Pacquiao. And to me, just I just enjoy the moment. You know, Manny just such a a great champion is a legend, but not only that, he's a great human being. You know, to me, well, it's one of my best experiences in my life. You know, many Pacquiao. So uh, I'm very proud of it. You know, and, and I think uh, sparring with many Pacquiao, working with him, makes me a better fighter as well. You know, Ray, you mentioned fighting for your family, fighting for your kids. You had to prove that you are quote an alien of extraordinary ability by continuing to have success as a boxer, and then in November you received word that your petition had been granted. What was that moment like? Well, you know what? Um, uh, I was very emotional, you know, uh, especially because two years ago, uh, you know, I was almost quit a couple, couple times, you know what I mean? And... Uh, I'm 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 collecting all the you know uh everything I work for, you know what I mean? And I'm I'm getting back in so much. All my sacrifice, you know, um all my uh I I I sacrifice my family, my kids, you know. Uh I, I sacrifice so much. It hurt me more to sacrifice my kids and sacrifice myself. You know, but but I got everything I, I dream about, you know, like, I got a nice home for my kids, you know, uh, uh, I'm a world champion, uh, I'm about to get my green card, you know, just, what else can I ask, you know, we, uh, we're healthy, I mean, I'm happy. Ray, I mean, all these things that you thought about, that you dreamed about, that maybe at some point you thought were not possible, they're all coming true because you made it so, you willed it, you worked for it. Let me ask you one last thought. What's it feel like now to to no longer be the opponent? In fact, let me backtrack. Can you explain what you meant by that? Because you are a world champion. Now everybody's looking at you, but you used to feel like you were the opponent. What did that mean? Well, being the opponent... Um... I kind of like that I get used to it, you know, at some point because it motivates me more, inspires me even more to try and harder and work harder, you know what I mean? So even even if I'm the on the A side right now, I keep that mentality because that mentality uh, uh, 
make me who I am right now. Make me a champion. Always being hungry. Always being being the guy that I'm supposed to win. You know, even at this point, I know I'm gonna fight that I'm not supposed to win. I'm gonna still be of those challenges. You know what I mean? And but but I like it. You know, I like to to prove people wrong. I like to uh, shout some mouth. You know, and but it's not really about what people think about me. You know what I mean? about that it's about what i what i what i think about myself what i i believe about my in myself you understand what i'm saying because uh in the the long road you know there's a lot of people negative comments you know and and i didn't listen to it you know i i listened to my gut feeling you know and and, and i knew i believe i i could uh i could do something but it was always gonna be somebody they don't believe in you. It's always gonna be like it was a lot of people, especially on the on the boxing the boxing business. You know, people with a, with a good reputation. They they didn't expect me to be a world champion. You know, and to me, it's a big accomplishment. And here you it's are. About what people think, what people say is about what you believe in, whatever God God's will. You know. It's a great message. It's not about what people think. It's about what you believe in and whether or not you believe in yourself and whether or not you're willing to pay that price that you paid. WBO lightweight champion. He won that belt last Friday night. He is the world champ. Ray Beltran, my guest. Ray, it's great to get caught up. Congrats on that belt. You spent your entire life chasing it, and now you have it. Great to have you on, Ray. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, and and, and thank you because, you know, for your time, you know, and, and so people can, you know, hear about my, my story and hope... Uh, some people uh, uh, get inspired, you know, and they never quit, you know. And thank you very much. God bless. Hey now, what's going on? Welcome to the jungle. A tremendous Monday to you. My name is Jim Rome. Nice to have you here. You never want to be trending after your rendition of the national anthem, and you really do not want to be trending the morning after your rendition of the national anthem, but Fergie was. Yeah! If Carl Lewis was the Carl Lewis of terrible anthems, Fergie was the Usain Bolt, the star for a new generation. Cringy and awkward. Oh, stop. About 30 seconds into that, I was reaching for some protection. I took a cigarette out the back. I don't need it. It's not hot. <laughs> no, you didn't, Alvie. Hey, Alvie, we're on TV now. Let's play some basketball. <laughs> ben Golliver. I was there pregame about an hour and a half early when she was going through the sound check, and I knew it was going to be a problem. She kept going back to the microphone interference in my ear. I need this change. I need this change. And it sounded terrible two hours before the show. Hot. You're lucky they let you anywhere near that track. Now, you're lucky Rory didn't suplex you. I'm not going to yell, get in the hole. I'm not going to swear. I'm not going to get drunk. But I am going to dress like an idiot, and I am going to try to get some high five. AJ Hinch is my guest. Life is good, Jim. I like that intro, especially when you said 2017 World Series champ. Justin Verlander, quote, I think the American League goes through us. I love it because our guys will do what it takes to back it up. Shut up and dribble. It would have been the same as telling Jackie Robinson You might feel more comfortable if LeBron, quote, just shut up and dribble. But the league. And the country would be a worse place if you did. If all those cars that got crashed, that's two hundred grand a car. Plus, there's people. In there. Austin Dillon. Austin Dillon is my guest. Hey, I got a quick shout out. My buddy Drew Storm. He said, "Make sure I say I hope this brings me good jungle karma." Karma. Two completely different people. Mayfield gets it. Manziel didn't. I don't know if Mayfield is going to be a star or a guy ultimately holding a clipboard, but I do know this: he will not be out of the sport within two years the way Manziel is right now. We're just not the same mentally. Romy, I know the announcement. Oh, really? Sarah. 
Jessica Parker is favored to win the Kentucky Derby. Ah. See, they don't put human beings in the gate. Bob. It doesn't make any sense. They put horses in the gate. We are on satellite. Serious XM. Another way to get the program. You have no excuse. It's for Road Warriors. Howard. Rancho Bernardo. Shula Vista. To get a clear signal. Email. You certainly have come a long way since being a gopher in those days. Signed, Marsha. You remember those days when I was a gopher at KFMB? Wow, you have a good memory. Especially since that never happened. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. We're freaking freezing. I haven't been this cold since Minneapolis. The rest of the building, man, we are frozen. Frozen. Kelvin Sampson. Jim, it's always good to connect with an old friend. How you been, my man? My man. It is a leg that has gone the wrong direction. Everybody remembers where they were when Kevin Ware snapped his leg in the most gruesome way possible. Right? Wrong. Apparently, it never happened. Not according to the NCAA, it didn't. Michigan head coach Sean Beeline, my guest. Do you consider yourself the champs now that you know that? I, uh, you're, you're blindsided me on this one. I'll let you say that, too. <laughs> I got down to the two best teams in the country, and uh, I'll let everybody else answer that question, but thanks. No one's coming to save your ass. Get it through your f***ing head right now. Email. Romy, I'm glad that you made the point I'm telling the guy that he's a funny dude. You are a funny mother too. I'm funny. You are funny, dude. Oh, yeah. But funny knows funny. <laughs> Look who's talking smack. Email. Dear Jim, the luge sucks. Yours? Tootie. <laughs> Brent, I cannot believe it. You made me laugh. Good to have you, Sam. What's hey, up? How are you? I gotta talk about Tiger Woods. You wanna be worth anything? Go to Kim K or Paris Hilton route. Thanks! Shoot! Scores! That was such a sweet win on so many levels. Now, you probably should not be deciding a gold medal game with a shootout. That's brutal. But if you have to do it, that's the way to do it. Even your best hockey players are fat. We're still lean, we're still good looking, and we're not a wasteland full of broken, fat losers. Steve, good morning. What's up? How are you? Hey, Jim. Thanks for the roll. What an unbelievable thing you just said. No, I still really don't know who Larry Holmes is. You don't know is, who Larry Holmes is. But I don't need to know him. I'm not on the air. Hawk, you're fired. Larry, my friend, is that you? Yeah, man. You know what? I was turning the channel, man. I didn't know I could get on my TV, and here we are. Tori Lavello is my guest. Big unit. Hey. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Intense competitor, always prepared. Don't talk back to me, all right? Don't need to give any of the Canadian men, though, bud, because they joined the Mile High Club by themselves. And, uh... Ah! You, 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 you. Jason Kelsey is our guest. If you don't have the persistence, the, the determination, the perseverance to continue to push through adversity and to overcome obstacles, something that kind of struck me right in the forehead. Now you can always find this show. There are so many different ways. Definitely can find me. I am definitely a badass. I've got a kid. That's proof that I am a badass right there. Unwar clone with no sack. All right, Matt, thanks for that. Hawk, you can go ahead and walk your ass down the hallway. Paul Flannery joining us. I mean, look, players can't play with these things on, right? Bradley Beal was like, felt like I was Robocop. Your move, creep. Rocky Mountain High. You're the best, Jim. I appreciate you having me on, bro. Rome in space. Why won't you find my girl? Huh? 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 John L. Smith. He went to Michigan State. This is a monster house. Man, I've been a Fruit Loops kid. Britney ever. Spears. What is Britney doing with her life? Watch Coming to America. How about another one, fat boy? Let's play some basketball. Good night now! There it is. I hope you packed it in, denimed up, and you finished the week strong. And I hope the weekend is amazing for you. I will catch you right back here on Monday. See you then. We're out. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it. Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. 
do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love. 